You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Later, as 100,000 people take to the streets of Madrid to protest against austerity, we'll ask if Spain is about to follow Greece by electing a radical left government. But we begin in Japan, where the murder of two Japanese hostages by the so-called Islamic State terror group has shocked the country and invigorated a debate about Japan's pacifist post-war constitution. I'm joined from Tokyo by our correspondent, David McNeil, and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith. David, uh, these two hostages who were murdered by the Islamic State, they were very different people uh, from one another. Could you tell us something about who they were? Sure. Well, um, the first uh, Haruna Yukawa, he was um, the first uh, hostage to be beheaded. He was a a sort of troubled soul, I suppose, is how he's normally described, Uh, a wannabe security contractor who had no clients, uh, a man who had left Japan to start a new life in Syria, which, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, found very odd that he would go to a place like that uh, to start a new life. He lost his wife to cancer. He apparently had at least one suicide attempt under his belt. Uh, And when he was uh, caught by Islamic State, um, he was passing himself off as a sort of soldier of fortune, stroke doctor. Um, The second person, Kenji Goto, was a very respected uh, freelance video journalist who specialized in uh, covering conflict zones, and in particular the victims of conflict zones, children. Uh, a lot of his documentaries have been screened in Japan, particularly on the state broadcaster, NHK, the equivalent of RTE. Um, a well-liked person and somebody who we found out during this whole crisis had left behind a two-week-old child to, to go and try and rescue uh, Mr. Yukawa, at least as far as we can tell. And has the reaction to these two deaths been, uh, been very different in Japan? Well, I think that's fair to say. I mean, Yukawa-san, because he was considered kind of an odd character, uh, he was, uh, while people felt very sorry for him, he was kind of very quickly written out of the narrative, if you like, of what happened. And then uh, Kenji Goto, uh, who, you know, reminded some people in a way of British aid worker Alan Henning, of course, who was uh, beheaded by uh, Islamic State last year, sort of impeccable character, you know, somebody who was uh, going to help people in the region, somebody who had the best intentions, uh, and who, uh, despite all of that, was was killed. The Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has uh, said that he will never forgive the people responsible for these murders, Uh, but his role in this whole uh, drama uh, is the subject of some controversy, isn't it? Well, I mean, one reason why it's controversial, I suppose, is that um, exactly his timing of when he went to the Middle East, as you know, he uh, pledged uh, $200 million in non-military aid uh, to help sort of reduce the jihadi menace. And the exact wording of what he said when he gave this speech in Cairo in Egypt uh, last month is the subject of some controversy and speculation. But, But it seems, you know, fairly clear that... Uh, he he went to the region attempting to sort of show that Japan is uh, wants to take a more muscular role, if you like, um, um, in in sort of non-military aid in the region to uh, uh, to combating the uh, Islamic State menace. And some people have accused him of blundering into the into the crisis. And of course, it was only three, two or three days later when Islamic State issued this threat 
that they were going to behead Kenji Goto and Haruna Yukawa. And there's also some criticism uh, from uh, from diplomats that he, he knew at, at the time when he went to give this speech in Cairo, he knew that uh, IS was holding two Japanese hostages. So there's some debates about, you know, how prepared he was for something like this to happen. Uh, the uh, How unusual is it, David, for Japan to get involved in this sort of way in the politics of the Middle East? Well, Japan, you know, as you know, has has uh, always taken, well, since the post-war period, taken a very low-key role in the Middle East, um, you know, played a, quite a deft role, actually, in 1973 during the Yom Kippur War and in the 80s. Um, sort of, um, you know, ostensibly supporting U.S. interests, but not getting involved in U.S. wars, and famously writing a huge check, of course, for the for the first Gulf War, $13 billion to pay for the war, but not getting involved militarily. And, and that earned, you know, the, the fact that Japan was sort of neutral, pacifist country that stayed behind the scenes helped insulate it and helped it um, keep aloof from the problems that have sort of... Um, um, that has uh, bothered the region. And, and I think the only, re- you know, if we want to look for a precedent for what's happening, we have to go right back to 2004 when there was um, a hostage crisis for Japan. There was a number of Japanese hostages uh, taken in uh, in Iraq, and that was ostensibly um, retaliation for Japan's sort of non-military role. Japan had actually put boots on the ground uh, its troops on the ground in Iraq uh, in a supporting role for America, but in a non-military role. And one uh, Japanese citizen was beheaded. But that's 10 years ago, and this what's happening now is considered very, very unusual. Now, Mr. Abe wants uh, Japan to have a more assertive foreign policy. Why does he want that? What's the argument in favor of it? Well, uh, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to his supporters, they will say that Japan has shirked its responsibilities on the world stage for too long, that it has um, outsourced its, you know, the sort of the dirty military work to America and the Middle East and so on. And Japan depends on much, much of its oil from the Middle East, of course, uh, to to America, and that it's time for Japan to sort of stand up and and, and uh, uh, take a more assertive role. And And I think... There's some merit to that criticism, but uh, I think that the people who are critical of, of that sort of stance would say, well, uh, that Abe-san has ambitions for sort of a great power status, that he's nostalgic for Japan's role when it sort of bestrode Asia. Uh, and, of course, his mission to, um, to take Japan uh, onto the world stage again is, um, is bolted with this uh, attempt to whitewash what Japan did in World War II. Uh, so, so a lot of people are suspicious of his attempts. I think it's it's safe to say uh, uh, to uh, take a more muscular role in the world. Uh, Paddy Smith, is Mr. Abe right? Is it time for Japan to stand up and be more assertive in terms of its foreign policy? Um, well, I, I certainly don't think that that he's going to add to the a sense of calm in the in the in the region if he does so. The Japan is involved in a number of of uh, disputes uh, with uh, Korea and with China about disputed disputed sea and disputed islands. And if if Japan arms up, it it is likely simply to add to the tension over over those uh, the, those issues. Um, it's interesting that the the the, the arguments uh, involved. Uh, have certain um, 
similarities with with discussions in Ireland about about uh, our neutrality policy. The uh, Shinzo Abe supports uh, what what has been called proactive pacifism, which sounds a bit like uh, pacifism that isn't pacifist at all. And uh, uh, the the arguments that we've had about redefining neutrality, he seems to be having uh, in in a very similar kind of way um, in in uh, in uh, Japan and. Um, it's still being couched in terms of an ability, uh, for example, to, to to send troops abroad to defend allies rather than to engage in a, in a positive uh, wars of of conquest or anything like that. Obviously, um, so it, it's being there's a sort of double talk going on, uh, and he's talking. He he has political problems in terms of of getting uh, the changes through. He has to. Um, uh, he has to see Article 9 of the Constitution either amended or redefined. And an amendment would require support uh, probably in the Parliament from his pacifist uh, allies in, in government, which should prove uh, to be quite uh, difficult. So it's not an easy road, but there's no doubt in my mind anyway that the, in a way the hostage crisis has provided him with the political opportunity. And presumably uh, Japan's allies, notably the United States, would be very happy for Japan to bear a greater burden of... Um uh, militarily. Yes, cautiously happy. Uh, I think that I think the Americans are a bit ambivalent because they don't like the Japanese saber rattling over the 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 islands, for example, and the rows uh, with China. But they would like uh, J- Japan to lift the burden a bit uh, in terms of of uh, the strategic uh, regional uh, re- regional issues. Uh, David uh, McNeil, has this hostage crisis boosted support for uh, Mr. Abe's more muscular foreign policy? Well, that's a very tough question to answer because there's no polls. <clears throat> I mean, um, my sense is that public opinion remains still remains strongly against Japan becoming too entangled in sort of messy foreign policy issues, and that what happened to these two hostages will will reinforce that. I mean, I think there was two strands of opinion about uh, what happened to these two men. One said, "Well, they got themselves into this mess, uh, and um, you know, they not quite they got what they deserved, but um, it can't be helped." And then there was another strand of opinion which felt sorry for them and which blamed uh, Mr. Abe for triggering the crisis. But I would say the second, the latter, was a, a much um, a much less prominent sort of opinion in Japan. And I think whatever happens, you know, I think as Paddy says no matter what public opinion, what this government has proved is that it will ignore public opinion and it will push for, uh, you know, its agenda. And its agenda in this case is to use the hostage crisis to demand a more aggressive and assertive foreign policy. And I think uh, that's going to happen and is indeed happening. I mean, uh, Prime Minister Abe has been on the TV in the last week sort of saying, well, this proves why we need to have uh, the self-defense forces, for example, Japan's military, uh, uh, being allowed to go abroad and help rescue Japanese nationals in trouble. That's the sort of argument he's making at the moment. And I think he'll continue to make that argument, whatever uh, uh, public opinion says. Finally, David, the uh, terrorists from the so-called Islamic State uh, have said that they now regard Japan itself as an enemy. How great is the sense of threat that's felt by the public in Japan now in these days after the beheadings? Well, I was just actually writing this up for the paper. One of the, the, the biggest tabloids in the country, uh, the Nikkan Gendai, wrote a headline uh, this week saying that uh, Islamic State will attack the country on February the 18th, uh, four days before the Tokyo Marathon. And, and um, they don't have um, 
they don't have any uh, evidence for that claim. But a number of the weekly magazines are also saying that it's only a matter of time before radical jihad kind of comes to Japan. And I think um, whatever about the veracity of those claims, I think it's, it's evidence that, you know, something has shifted in Japan, that a country that once saw itself as being aloof from a lot of these kind of messy foreign entanglements now understands that um, it's part of them and that it could pay a price. David McNeil in Tokyo, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. A week after Greece elected Europe's first radical left government since before the Second World War, Spain's anti-austerity party Podemos drew 100,000 people onto the streets of Madrid. Podemos, which means we can, is just over a year old, but opinion polls put the party ahead of Spain's two established parties, the right-wing Popular Party and the centre-left Socialists. So could Spain be about to follow Greece's lead by electing a left-wing government pledged to tearing up the European austerity rulebook? I'm joined now from Madrid by our correspondent Guy Hedgeco, and Patrick Smith is still with me here in studio. Guy, can you tell me something uh, about Saturday's demonstration? How big was this by Spanish standards? Well, it was very big. I mean, you mentioned that 100,000 figure um, I mean, that, that was a figure given by the police. It's seen as quite a, uh, a conservative figure. Some people put it a lot higher than that. But, I mean, I was there in Puerto del Sol in central Madrid where the, the, the crowd gathered. And, it, you know, it, it really was packed and much more packed than other similar demonstrations organized in recent years, for example, by the unions and so on. And I think what it shows, this demonstration, was that uh, Polemos is really the only party, certainly in Spain at the moment, which has such a sort of ability to mobilize activists on the street, uh, possibly the only organization, uh, organization of any kind in Spain at the moment that can mobilize so many people. I mean, the unusual thing about it is that Polemos was not making any specific demand of the government. It was simply a show of force. And I think in that sense, it was very successful to get so many people out onto the streets. Now, as you say, this uh, movement, Podemos, is remarkably successful in terms of its ability to mobilize people. But as I said, it's just a year old. Who is uh, or who are Podemos? Well, it's founded a year ago by a group of, uh, of academics. Uh, the, the leader is Pablo Iglesias, who is a 36-year-old uh, political scientist from a university in Madrid. Uh, and the core founders of, uh, of Podemos are from this university, the Complutense University in Madrid. Uh, and they seem to have been planning this for a long time before um, they sort of announced themselves to the world 12 months ago. Um, but it, it has been ex- it's sort of extraordinary how since uh, they um, officially founded the party in January of last year, uh, they've managed to sort of consolidate themselves as a, as a, as a power. Um, but they, they present themselves as a as a grassroots group, as a sort of horizontal organization, which they says contrasts with uh, the sort of vertical organization of Spain's traditional political parties. And they say they respond to the people. They're not traditional politicians. They don't have all the baggage that uh, Spanish career politicians have. They say they come from different backgrounds and that they, they're including people who would not normally be involved in Spanish politics uh, in the decision-making process. So they're presenting themselves very much as a different kind of political phenomenon. Pa- uh, Pablo Iglesias is a remarkably effective communicator. How central is his role in the appeal of Podemos? 
Well, I think it's absolutely key. I mean, he's he's you know, he's very young. He's thirty six. He doesn't look like a normal politician. He has a ponytail. When he addressed the uh, the crowd on Saturday, he was just wearing jeans and a, and a sort of anorak. He looks so different to a, an ordinary Spanish politician. He's much more dynamic as well. Um, he, he's very good at speaking in public. Um, he has this sort of quite fierce, aggressive style. He manages to sort of channel the anger of ordinary Spaniards when he talks about issues like corruption or uh, the failure of the, the traditional parties to represent ordinary Spaniards. And uh, you know, talking to analysts, they say that he is absolutely key to the success of Podemos. Um, you know, he's, he's telegenic, but he's also intelligent. Um, but beyond him, there, there is also you know, a sort of a, a core of uh, of masterminds, um, the center of the party, who uh, seem to draw uh, a lot of inspiration or a certain amount of inspiration from Latin American governments, uh, such as Bolivia and Venezuela and Ecuador. And, and indeed, some of those uh, people at the top of the party do have quite strong links uh, to those uh, administrations. Juan Carlos Monadero, who's number three in the party, uh, was for five years a senior advisor to Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Now, that's something which worries a lot of people in Spain, particularly on the right. But Podemos, in recent weeks in particular, has been very keen to sort of play down those sort of links. And it has been playing up much more its uh, relationships to Syriza, for example, in Greece, rather than its links to Latin America. Where is the support for Podemos coming from? Is it coming from the socialists or is it coming from people who haven't voted before? Well, I think a lot of it is coming from the socialists. Um, I mean, recent years, the socialist voters have been really disenchanted, uh, particularly since the 2011 election, which the socialists lost to uh, the Popular Party. Uh, and there's been a general feeling that they've, you know, they've been drifting, they've lost direction. Um, so the socialists certainly have been suffering a lot with the arrival of Podemos, because Podemos is a left-leaning group, a left-leaning party, so, you know, logically, it's been taking a lot, of, uh, a lot of votes from the socialists. But if you talk to pollsters and, and analysts, they're, they're saying that, you know, that there are people on the right as well who are disenchanted with politics in general and who are disenchanted with the, the popular party government of Mariana Rajoy. And they're drifting towards uh, Podemos as well, even though Podemos is described by some people as a far-left group. And, and some of the, the policies it's, um, it's talked about are certainly uh, very left-leaning, whether it's you know, more control of, uh, of key sectors of the economy by the state or uh, restructuring or auditing the national debt and so on. But it does seem to have this appeal. Um, particularly to left-leaning voters, but it's, it's starting to reach out to voters on the right, if you believe the pollsters. You mentioned uh, Syriza in Greece. Uh, the new Greek government has, uh, uh, has made a pretty dramatic start. Uh, it's demanding uh, a whole set of uh, changes, an abandonment of some of the austerity policies imposed by the Troika, but also a European debt conference to write down uh, not just Greek debt, but also some of the debt of other heavily indebted countries like Spain and Ireland. What's been the response of the Spanish government to the demands of the new Greek government? Well, and Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy is a sort of a notoriously cautious figure, and he doesn't like to sort of come out and make uh, controversial statements, and least of all on the international stage. That's really not his style. So we haven't heard anything very strident from him. 
um, so far. Um, but you have to bear in mind that Spain, over the last uh, four or five years, really since the Eurozone crisis kicked in, it has been one of the, the, sort of the most obedient um, followers of, uh, of austerity of all. You know? uh, and certainly, Prime Minister Rajoy has really been preaching the austerity message uh, very, very closely since he came into power at the end of uh, 2011. Um, so, you know, clearly the, the arrival of Syriza is a problem for him. He sees that as a concern, especially with Podemos in Spain um, talking about similar uh, issues to Syriza. Uh, we heard from the uh, finance minister, um, uh, Montoro, yesterday, and he was saying that rules have to be followed. He said this quite clearly, um, and he, he was referring clearly to, uh, to Greece and to any other country which might veer from the path of austerity. But uh, his message was that all the countries in the European Union, in the Eurozone, you know, have to follow the rules um, if they've agreed to, uh, to any kind of conditions for a, for a bailout or a loan, then they have to follow those rules. So, I mean, that seems to be the message we're getting from the Spanish government, although it's being fairly cautious in giving the message. Uh, Patty Smith, uh, how anxious are people in Brussels and Frankfurt and Berlin that uh, that there'll be some political contagion from Greece, as it were, and that Spain is going to follow uh, Greece by electing a left-wing government? Well, I'd first just observe that Rajoy seems to be behaving rather like Enda Kenny, indeed, uh, in terms of his rhetoric about Greece. It's... it's um it's, uh, Although perhaps <coughs> not quite as reckless as Enda Kenny, in that uh, Enda Kenny seems to have gone uh, rather further out there, uh, whereas Rajoy appears to have been more cautious, perhaps. Perhaps, perhaps. I think, I think internationally there's two aspects to the uh, um, general reaction uh, across Europe. Uh, firstly, it, if the fear that there would be a repeat of the Greek crisis and the the problems of of renegotiating Spanish, uh, Portuguese, Ita- Irish, whatever other Italian debt uh, certainly is is nightmarish as far as the the uh, leaders of of Europe are concerned. And then the second, uh, which you refer to as political contagion, in other words, that, that Podemos or Syriza would be replicated in, inside the countries of of Europe. And I think I think there you've seen it already. It it, it is happening in in its different forms. When Podemos is significantly different from from uh, Syriza and UKIP is significantly different from Podemos and our own manifestations of, of anti-austerity uh, forces are significantly different different uh, too uh, but I would say I would say that the first priority uh, for European governments is therefore that the any deal that is done with Greece I think there's an acceptance that a deal has to be done has to be couched in a way that doesn't represent uh, a public uh, concession to Syriza on a dramatic scale. This mustn't, um, if, if it's portrayed in, in that way, it will only incite others uh, to to follow. So it's an important uh, precedent in terms of the framing of, of a, a solution in Greece. That is already beginning to emerge in the sense that we're now not talking, uh, and even Syriza is not talking about uh, abandoning of the debt. The the um, it's talking about rescheduling it, and and they're using other other words uh, to to perhaps have the same effect. But uh, it is cl- clearly uh, what is perceived in terms of the form of any deal is extraordinarily important to European politicians. And and secondly, then, in, in relation to, to contagion, uh, I mean, we, ha- we have, as I said, seen uh, this. It's interesting that Podemos... 
uh, although it is being caric- uh, caricatured in a way as, as an extreme left party, uh, like uh, Syriza, has has not so much um, adopted a program of opposition to uh, uh, the ruling class and the traditional class program. That its opposition is to uh, what it calls la casta, which is the, in effect, the establishment, and it it has managed to bring around it a broad alliance of people who who feel excluded from the political system, uh, more than just, if you like, the most impoverished or the the, the working class, because of its its uh, program, because of its anti-establishment thing, and that is that is something that is worrying to to. I, 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 one thing that uh, Podemos does have in common with Syriza is that it's overtly pro-European. It uh, it, it couches uh, its uh, proposals in the language of uh, European solidarity, uh, which perhaps does set it apart from some of the other anti-austerity movements like uh, like some of those here or elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. Uh, although I think we have to say that, um, uh, and of course, you know, clearly in, in, in Britain, the UKIP movement is, is a, a hard right movement and it's, it's, it's very different. It's very explicitly, its entire message is to do not so much with austerity, uh, but, but with uh, Europe. But it's, it's part of the same uh, phenomenon without, without any uh, doubt. Uh, I mean, I think that the, uh, the, the pro-European message is one that is, will have resonances eventually here too. I think that, that Sinn Féin, for example, which is uh, has tried to straddle the uh, Eurosceptic and pro-Europhile fences uh, by claiming that it's for a different kind of, of Europe, is going to move gradually towards a more explicitly pro-European uh, position, uh, uh, partly arising out of the success of these two movements. Guy, can I ask you just something about some of the other policies that are of Podemos? I mean, we obviously the focus is on austerity, but the other central issue in Spain is the whole business of the Spanish state and uh, and devolution and nationalism. Where does Podemos stand within that debate? Well, I mean, it, it, the answer is it's not been very clear in terms of the, the, you know the, the regional debate. Um, and so there's, there's been, I think, a lot of pressure on it to, to commit itself. But as with many other areas, it hasn't committed itself yet. Um, it sort of seems to be broadly in favour of the right to decide, for example, in Catalonia, you know, it's been, it's been campaigning for the right to decide through a referendum on its future uh, with a view to gaining independence. Um, now, Podemos uh, hasn't talked about the right to decide for Catalonia or any region that, that wants it. But I think it's wary of alienating uh, some of the, the Spaniards that it has won over, or a lot of the Spaniards it has won over in other parts of the country outside Catalonia by coming out and, and being seen as too favorable to uh, Catalan independence or increased autonomy for Catalonia. So it's one of these many issues on which um, Podemos I think, is starting to tread very carefully because it sees that this is going to be pretty key in the upcoming elections, both in May, we have regional elections in May, and then the general election probably at the end of the year. And, and the, the geographical, the regional issue is, is, is very sensitive at the moment in Spain, and I think they're probably deciding themselves how to handle this exactly. Uh, the first uh, electoral test that Syriza had was last year in the European elections. They won 8% of the vote. Um, in these regional elections coming up in May, what can we expect? Uh, a better performance? 
Well, I think we will. I mean, you know, the, the, the European elections really just announced Podemos. They came out of nowhere. That was 1.2 million votes. So, you know, that, that, that was seen as extraordinary given their, their background, which was sort of, you know, unknown. Uh, now, in, in uh, opinion polls, they're, they're, they're leading the governing popular party and the opposition socialists in many opinion polls. They are the, the top party in Spain, according to many polls. So that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be uh, you know, winning in every region. Um, but uh, I mean, the pollsters are expecting them to perform very well um, in that they won't necessarily be competing in all the regions, but those in which they do compete, there's a good chance that they will end up governing, not necessarily on their own, but quite possibly in a coalition. Um, so the negotiations with other parties are going to be absolutely crucial, and it'll be interesting to see who they can reach agreements with. Uh, there's another left-leaning party, the United Left, or Izquierda Unida, which is sort of a traditional communist-led uh, coalition, uh, which has been around for a long time. It'd be interesting to see whether Podemos can reach agreements with them uh, in, in, in any regions. Um, and if they perform well in May, then that will be an extremely important springboard going ahead to the general elections. And if we look ahead, finally, Guy, to the general election, how crucial will the performance and the fate of the new Greek government be to the prospects for Podemos? I think Spaniards are going to be watching Greece very closely. Um, I mean, they were watching Greece pretty closely ahead of the, the recent general elections because, you know, people could see the parallels. Um, Greece is obviously in a worse situation economically. It has more debt. Uh, its unemployment is not much higher, but it's slightly higher. Spain's unemployment is, is at 24%. Um, but you know, many Spaniards still feel that they haven't emerged from economic crisis, even though GDP is expected to grow this year by around 2%. People just aren't buying the message of growth. So they're looking to Greece as, you know, as, a, um, as a neighbor which is undergoing you know, a lot of the, the same problems. And they'll be looking closely at Syriza to see if it's a viable alternative. Um, and I think people do see Syriza as something akin to Podemos in Spain. Um, you know, Podemos has, has drawn the parallel itself. It's called Syriza a, a, a brother or a sister party. Pablo Iglesias has visited, he visited Athens last month to campaign in favor of Syriza. He has a close relationship with Alexis Tsipras. Um, so the, the parallels are all there, and I think they're going to be um, very important for Spaniards over the coming months as the election approaches. Guy Hedgeco in Madrid and Paddy Smith here in Dublin, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com, and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.